that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. My name is Brian Green. I'm the Director of Technology Ethics at the Markola Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I work on issues related to all sorts of things in technology ethics, including transhumanism, including space exploration, religion and technology, the corporate implementation of ethics, and any other uh, interesting issues that tend to come up in the news. Well, Brian, I will tell you this much. We are very excited to talk to you about the plethora of topics and questions we've arranged. But before we dig into any of that, since our podcast is called I'm Immortal, a little bit of a play on the word immortal, we have to ask you, what does the word immortal or immortality in general mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question. The first thing I would say is that I don't think material immortality is possible. So one of the things that life extension or radical life extension people talk about is, you know, some people will say there's a possibility that people living now will never die. And I don't think that is realistic at all. I think that we're not living in a kind of universe that permits that ultimately. Can life be extended? I think so. I think people will be able to live longer. I definitely see medical progress happening there, although I think there's a lot of social progress that needs to happen along with that. We've seen that in the United States, not just because of COVID, but because of various other social factors. The life expectancy in the United States has actually trended down over the last few years. So there's a lot of uh, negative things affecting life expectancy also. But getting away from the social factors, getting away from the medical factors, is immortality even theoretically possible? I would say not in this universe. However, as someone coming from a religious perspective, I have a Christian background, I'm Catholic. I think that one of the things that Christianity talks about is the fact that there is this expectation of a new heaven and a new earth, which is a completely different universe with different universal laws. And in that situation, then immortality might be possible. Fundamentally, it has to do with, you know, things like entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. Can you actually create matter that doesn't decay? And I'd say not in this universe, but hopefully in a different universe. So you would be, I mean, given your religious background, you'd be for eternal life through the Christian means of, you know, resurrection, hopefully the whole bodily resurrection. And you wouldn't be in for immortality because immortality is not possible. But what about the middle ground in terms of life extension? Like say the scientist tomorrow said, Brian Green, hey, we can give you like 40 more healthy years. Would you take it? I think that's a pretty easy answer to say yes to, because I think once again, coming from a religious perspective, the Catholic Church has lots of hospitals. One of the things about Jesus' ministry when he was on earth is he went around healing people, even raising the dead. So I think that there's, you know, interesting resonances there, although differently valenced in a lot of ways, whether it's a more spiritual or physical raising of the dead. So I think it's actually an easy one, right? 40 more years is not a radical change in human lifespan. Most people die these days in developed countries, at least around the age of 80. And if they could live to the age of 100 or 120, and once again, this also has to do with whether this is going to be enjoyable life or whether it's just going to be, you know, 40 years in a nursing home, right? 40 years in a nursing home is not what people are aiming for. And yet many medical techniques that we have today, that's all you can get. You will keep you alive, but you're not going to be in a terrific situation while you are alive. So I think it's easy to say yes. However, we do have to think about also what is the cost to society? Who has access to it? There are all sorts of justice issues associated with that. And uh, we really have to think about the kind of the social context in which that's going to be happening also. 
So I'm going to get a little bit off topic and ask you more of a personal question. What does a day in your life look like currently or typically? So I work as a director of technology ethics at the Markowitz Center. Before the pandemic happened, I would go down to Santa Clara University. You know, it's a commute to get down there. So it would always take like an hour either direction. I'd listen to a podcast on the way down, listen to a podcast on the way back, unless I want to listen to music instead. And when I'm on campus, I would have been talking to students, teaching classes in the evenings, teaching the Graduate School of Engineering at Santa Clara University, where I currently I teach one class a year, which is AI ethics. And previously, I've taught engineering ethics in general. I've taught software ethics. I've taught climate change and ethics. I've taught bioengineering ethics. So those are things that I've taught in the last 10 years or so. And then, you know, beyond teaching, I work a lot with corporations and that corporate work has actually continued through the pandemic. Tech companies are interested in ethics. They don't want to make the world a worse place. They recognize that that's bad, not only for the world that they live in, that they have to live in, but it's also ultimately bad for their company. You know, we work with them, hopefully giving them some guidance on those sorts of issues, but also there are just a lot of different things that we do. So for example, academic conferences, do academic conferences, deliver papers, publish things, do interviews with media. So there's all sorts of different things. And then, of course, when the day is over, I return back to my family and you know, do things that a husband and father does. Wow, pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, teaching, working with corporations, and of course, your family. Very interesting when I was reading about you, and you seem very interesting now. But one question I had, because you had a very similar educational background to Sufal and I. We were both biology students, and we read like, oh, your undergrad was in genetics. But I'm failing to see the link between studying genetics and then doing all this sort of ethical work. Can you sort of explain how that happened? Yeah, I can. So I was raised a child of the 80s and 90s. And as I was growing up, you know, there were lots of science shows on TV. And I watched those shows and I thought to myself, oh, I want to be a scientist. Scientists do all the coolest stuff. So I go to Davis, University of California, Davis. And I thought I wanted to be a physics major. And I quickly realized that actually I didn't like physics very much. So I said, okay, back away from physics, too much math. You know, I'm not really into calculus that much. So next step, I started hanging out with anthropologists. I started doing genetic anthropology, also started doing some plant biotechnology and a few courses that I was taking. And I thought, okay, I can't decide whether I want to be a, a plant biology major, which is one of the majors at Davis, or a anthropology, biological anthropology major, which is another major at Davis. And I said, ah, there's something that both these things have in common, and that is DNA. So I became a genetics major. And I did pretty well in the genetics major, except that I discovered after working in a laboratory for a few years and even working, I worked at uh, Genentech, which is a biotechnology company in South San Francisco. I discovered I didn't like laboratory work. And that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin, right? It's one thing not to like math and be able to move away from physics and move towards genetics, but it's another thing to be doing, wanting or thinking that I wanted to do science and discover that actually I don't really like doing experiments. They're kind of boring. Um, so this is quite devastating to me. I didn't know what to do next. And that's not to say that they're objectively boring, right? Science is not objectively boring. There are many people who find science to be super interesting. So I'm not trying to discourage people from taking that path. You got to find your own path in life. And I didn't know what to do next. So in the meantime, I just met the woman that I wanted to marry and we got married. And neither of us had really strong ideas of what we were going to do with our lives. So what we did is we joined the Jesuit Volunteers International, which is a Catholic volunteer organization. And they sent us out to the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the Marshall Islands are very unique 
place. If you go from California to Hawaii, and then from Hawaii, the same distance again in the same direction, you end up in the Marshall Islands. And if you do that again, you end up in Papua New Guinea. So the Pacific Ocean is really, really big. The Marshall Islands are really, really remote. Because of their remoteness, it turns out that they've been used for a lot of destructive scientific experiments, to put it that way. They've been used for nuclear testing, and they are currently still being used for ballistic missile testing and ballistic missile interceptor testing. And so the United States has a military base out there called Kwajalein, and I was living on an island five miles away from Kwajalein, where the native workers live, basically. The United States took the military base from Japan in World War II and has kept it since then to continue with these type of nuclear and ballistic missile experiments. And so this got me really interested in the ethics of technology and how technology is actually used, because not only were the Marshall Islands heavily damaged by nuclear weapons testing, 10% of their country is still heavily radioactive from fallout. And these tests happened in the 1940s and 50s. So we're talking a long time into the past, 70 years ago. So they still have this trouble with radioactive fallout. And they're still having ballistic missiles come in. I saw, I saw a Minuteman 3 intercontinental ballistic missile re-enter the atmosphere at Kwajalein Atoll. And I saw a ballistic missile interceptor launched from a few miles away. You know, I'm teaching class one day and I hear this roaring outside and it's a rocket going up into the air, right? These things are pretty unusual. And I looked at it and I said, there's serious technological impacts there, or rather social impacts of these technologies on human beings here. Some of my students had had operations because they had cancer from this fallout, or they had their relatives or parents even had been injured from the lingering radiation in their country. That's just one part of it. The other thing is the Marshall Islands are going to go underwater from climate change. So climate change is, of course, happening right now. And most people don't know or, or haven't heard that the sea level's already gone up about eight inches, more or less. And this means that when you're in low-lying atolls like the Marshall Islands, where the average height of the islands out of the water, and this is the average uh, high tide line, so not the, not the highest tide, not the lowest tide, but the medium, they're only six feet out of the water. And so adding eight inches on top of that significantly reduces how much of your island is out of the water at high tide. And so they've been having flooding events and they, they knew even when I was living there, the, the water was getting closer. But after I left there, you know, I was there between 2001 and 2003. In the 18 years since I was there, they started having almost annual flooding events now because the sea level has gone up that much in just a few years. And they're going to have to start asking themselves a question at some point, how much flooding are we willing to deal with? You know, every time there's a high wind and waves come in, we're just going to deal with water coming into our houses. Are we going to deal with water washing across the roads with our cars rusting away? And, uh, you know, more and more of them are leaving the country and coming to the United States for the most part because they have a, an agreement between their country and the United States. Or at least they did in the past. The United States is becoming more anti-immigration, unfortunately. Um, and that prevents them from necessarily being able to uh, get out of their country. Anyway, all of this together got me very interested in the social impact of technology. I left the Marshall Islands, came back to the United States, applied for graduate school. I got a master's degree at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And that master's degree linked together genetics and ethics. So I talked about what is the Catholic official teaching on genetic manipulation of human beings. And so that was my master's degree. 
And then it all turned out that my, my master's degree all came down to one sentence that I found in one document, which is that genetic manipulation is good if it facilitates the natural development of the human person. And so then the next question is, well, what is the natural development of a human person? And that's my PhD right there. So I continued, I got my PhD and uh, basically said, you know, what is the natural development of a human person? What is it about human nature? And particularly if we take our technology and turn that back on ourselves, what does that mean? What is it, what part of our human nature do we need to protect? And what part of our human nature is available for being manipulated in some ways? Wow, that was heavy and very interesting at the same time. I'm trying to still process everything you told me about those islands. But while I'm processing it, I might as well ask more about, well, a little bit more about your work. I know you've written a lot about AI and the ethics of AI. And uh, while we were reading through your work, we came across this idea of four groups of solutions in order to prevent the creation of dangerous AI. And just for the audience, I'd like to remind them that if they've ever watched some sci-fi, AI is often portrayed as very dangerous, whether it be iRobot or, you know, AI taking over, causing some damage to humans, whatever it may be. In my definition, at least, that's what I like to think of as dangerous AI, something that can cause harm towards us or cause harms towards society in general. So could you describe a little bit more about these four groups of solutions and which one do you think is more likely to succeed versus the others? Yeah, so this is a paper that was uh, written by Alexei Turchin, who's a Russian scholar, and David Denkenberger, who's, who's an American scholar, and myself. And together, basically, what we were talking about was that there are four paths forward for the future. If we're talking about how to make AI safe, there are four, basically, uh, big solutions. The first one is just not to have AI. That doesn't really look like a solution right now because everybody's working on it really hard. Uh, but of course, this depends on AI, whether you're talking about strong AI that somehow has its own consciousness or volition or things like that, or whether it's you know the much more weaker kind of AI that we have that we're already dealing with today, which is you know actually that form of machine learning and kind of simple or narrow AI is all over the place. But the no AI option is really a question of, uh, it doesn't look to me like this is going to happen. Socially, people don't want that. Uh, we want to have the benefits of AI. But then the question is, if we're going to go forward, then there are three other options. One of them is to have only one AI in the future. So the future, somebody creates one powerful AI, that one powerful AI takes over all other AI research, or it somehow controls you know, humanity through the internet and prevents other competitors from appearing. And based on that, for better or for worse, it's the only one around. It's the, it's the only game in town. And then we have to work with it. Once again, is this going to be a sort of conscious entity or have any type of will of its own? That's totally something that we can't know at this point. I don't think that it's possible because I think there are fundamentally very big differences between biological organisms and computers. They're not the same thing in any way. A computer is not alive. A computer doesn't think, it computes. And humans are very different than that. We are alive and we think biologically. So very big differences there. However, we still have to deal with the fact that we could create an AI that has enough attributes of being like a human that it could imitate having will or imitate having volition or just exercise you know, whoever is in control of it, presumably, whether it's a government or a corporation, who's ever in control of it is then going to be acting through that machine and, and in so doing uh, prevents others from popping up. So that's the second option, that there's only one AI. The third option is that there are many AIs, or there's a large network of them, 
and they interact with each other in kind of a, an economy or ecosystem, if you want to think about that. That solution is already happening. So we're dealing with that right now. There are big AI corporations in China. There are big AI corporations in the United States. And you know many of these are multinational. So they're not just in one country. They're all over the world with their research labs in various places. And that is already happening. And so that, I think, is the most plausible solution. And the fourth solution is that humans become integrated with AI, whether it's through these Neuralink devices like uh, Elon Musk is developing, or other sorts of brain-computer interfaces, or this idea of uploading people. I don't think uploading is really a very likely possibility. I think that we'll be able to simulate people, but I don't think that we'll be able to take the idea of human consciousness and volition and actually get that into a, a silicon kind of organism. I'll leave open the idea that maybe there might be some sort of thing where you can take human neural tissue and integrate that with silicon chips or something like that, which is technology that people are working on right now. Every time somebody does a brain computer interface, they're already kind of probing that. And we already have technology, which is fairly advanced in that area in terms of both input and output directly into the human brain. So I think that ultimately the, the main solution here is going to be kind of a blend of three and four. It's going to be that humans are highly involved in the way these large networks of AIs are operating. But this is going to leave a lot of unclear area in which these things are going to interact with each other in unpredictable ways, ways that are faster than humans can deal with a lot of the time, because AI can do a lot of things a lot faster than people can. Uh, this is one of the reasons that often uh, AIs are in charge of cyber defense right now, is because humans can't react fast enough on cyber defense. So you have to have some sort of machine watching your system to protect it for you. And uh, as we go forward, we're going to see how these play out. I mean, I've watched too many dystopian movies and read too many novels that point to a lot of bad things happening. But let me entertain your third idea, which is at least the, you said it was the most plausible, which is just being multiple AI. And one of the concerns that Srufal and I were discussing when we were coming up with questions was sort of the ethics and safety behind it. So as like biology students, right, or I guess maybe science in general, we have these things like biosafety level one, two, three, all experiments are done in controlled conditions so that should there be anything that goes wrong, it doesn't go out and cause havoc in the world. But for AI, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not seeing some sort of global regulation or safety like this. There's no mandatory AI box for all these AIs being developed. The kid down the street could be making something and I'm like, well, that could do something. There's no one watching him. So my first question is, why is there no sort of regulation like this? And two, if there is none and there needs to be one that's developed, how can we go about doing that? So that's a great and really difficult question, which is why there's not a, you know, it's why the problem hasn't been solved yet, right? Basically, yes. At some point, we're going to have to come up with these sorts of international agreements. One of the things that's interesting is that because the United States and China are really in a competitive environment on this, neither side wants to be the one to regulate because they think that they'll put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. However, Europe is in a different situation where they're kind of the outsiders and they say, hey, we don't have a giant company like Google or Baidu or Tencent or Facebook or you know, Microsoft. They, of course, there are branches of all those companies in Europe, but they don't have it as kind of their home company. So they're not attached to it in the way that the US or China would be. And so Europe's in this unique position. They also happen to like regulation. This is something that the EU is known for is that they really like to regulate things. And so they're kind of taking the lead on AI regulation. They're starting with very tentative steps, I would say. And so 
there are various ways that you can regulate AI. You can try to regulate the technology itself and say you're not allowed to have you know, this many chips doing one process or something like that in order to keep it slow. That would be one kind of strange regulation, right? Nobody's arguing for that right now, as far as I know. You can also try to regulate the use of it, which is really the usage level is where people are exploring regulations right now and say, we're not going to use AI for facial recognition, or we're not going to use AI for military weaponry of certain types. This is where these things are happening. The problem is you can make a regulation against using AI for lethal autonomous weapon systems. And then another country comes in like Russia, and they've actually already said this, we're not going to abide by an international norm against having lethal autonomous weapon systems. They want to develop that technology. They want to have it. And as long as somebody is doing that, it becomes a strong incentive for everybody else to say, well, we have to do it too, because they're doing it. Trying to navigate international politics is very complicated, to say the least. So we have the European Union kind of taking the lead on this. And then there's a question of whether we can actually get people to cooperate. So I guess what I would say to sum up is that I think governance is going to develop over time, but it's going to be uneven and it's going to involve a lot of trying to coordinate people who have very different objectives. If every country on earth has their own objective of maximizing their own selfish power, then that is going to yield a system that is chaotic and competitive and problematic and ultimately likely to be destructive. Somehow we've got to help people realize that the whole world is safer off if everybody cooperates on this technology. But helping people to realize what the best path forward is, is always a difficult thing, especially when you have very, very strong opinions that are the opposite of that and say, look, the way to make our country safest is to have lethal autonomous weapon systems all along our border or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess since we're kind of on the topic of technology, where it's developing and who gets it first, we want to ask, is there any method that we should decide on who gets technology and more specifically in this case, longevity technology, whether it be some type of pill that extends your life or something like mind uploading? Is there a method we decide on who gets it first? They always start off as an experiment, right? So the experimental test subject of a successful technology gets it first. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, then, you know, then the person doesn't get it. The next step is, how are you going to ration that technology once you develop it? If it's a matter of you've developed a drug, there are a few drugs that they're currently working on that have kind of life extending properties. They either simulate caloric restriction or things like that. Those might add a couple of years to life. And if they're older drugs, then that's great. You know, if they're generic and everybody can just take them and it only costs like 10 bucks a month or something like that, then really it would be great to encourage that for everybody. But then you get into questions like, do you have a public healthcare system like Canada or most countries in Europe? Or do you have a system more like the United States where people have to fend for themselves? And if you have a system that's more built around fending for yourself, then you know rich people will be able to access that technology and then poor people won't. It makes sense, however, if you have a more publicly funded system, this might be one of the cheaper options for helping people to live healthy two or three years longer, or maybe even more than that, maybe who knows, five or six years longer, which is great, in which case you can encourage those things, maybe supply those broadly to the population. That's still going to cost a lot of money if you're paying 100 bucks a year for 30 million people or something like that. It's not an insignificant cost. However, it might overall balance out 
in the calculations on budgets of how to get your population to be healthier for longer. If you're dealing with more complicated issues, like if you're dealing with very expensive new treatments, perhaps very novel things, then it's not likely that everyone in the public is going to want to pay for just a few people getting it. And so it might be that, you know, if you're a wealthy person in that society, then you're going to have to pay for it yourself. And if you're in a country like the United States, then that's already going to be rationed that way. If you want that, you have to pay for it yourself. We can always ask the fundamental question of ethics. Should we do this? Is this good? And that's when you have to start asking those questions. What actually makes a good society? What is a, what is a good political entity look like in terms of how healthy its people are and how you ration scarce goods and those kinds of questions? Every society is going to come up with a slightly different answer to that question. Even societies that come up with the same solution in outcome might have different reasoning processes that get them there. So it's going to be interesting going forward to see how these sorts of things happen. Do you think, because you said each society will sort of think about matters and sort of take matters into their own hands. But I'm trying to think if we have the ideal scenario where the drug is cheap and there's public funding and there's a lot of public sentiment to want this to be widely available, do you ever see the right to more life or I guess access to life extension as being a fundamental human right? First of all, there's a big debate about what constitutes a human right or not. And some people will say something is a human right, and some people will say it's not a human right. A lot of societies recognize that there's a right to health care, for example. And if there's a right to health care, and the government is somehow involved in providing that right, then you have to say exactly what constitutes health care, right? Does health care include extremely expensive operations that you can't possibly supply to everyone, or does it only include things that you can supply to everyone equally? And when you get into those sorts of questions, once again, societies are going to come up with different answers. But I don't feel like I'm exactly answering your question. You sort of touched on it, which is the right to healthcare, because a lot of these scientists, or a lot of at least advocates for life extension, what they've been telling is, yes, although a lot of technology goes down the route of it's very expensive at first, but you know, the rich people will be the guinea pigs, and they'll figure it out, and eventually we'll get something that's cheap enough for all of us. One of the other things is that if there's enough push for it, then it will be accessible to all. And that seems like a big jump. I'm sure they have a more detailed argument than that. But my point is, if there is such a big push, like if everybody is wanting it, is that enough for it to constitute a human right? Will that eventually happen in any case? So I think that there's a human right to life, which is that we can't have other people come and take our life away from us. There's also, I don't think human rights language is exactly the right language to talk about extending human life, though. I think what you can say instead is you can think about what would a good person do in this case? I had come from a more virtue ethics perspective, which says, what does a good person look like? A good person is generous. They care about other people. And you would say it's good in general for people to live a long, healthy, happy life. If that's possible in any way, then you know that's the goal that we should aim for. One of the problems with extending life, however, is that there are two fundamental ways you can do this radical sort of life extension. You can either do something which is the magic bullet solution, which is, for example, you upload people into a computer and then they live very healthy and happily forever after, and you don't really have to do much besides make sure that their software is updated and processors and things like that. I don't think that's a really very likely option. Instead, what I see happening is what I call the parade option, which is that First, there's going to be one thing, there's going to be one treatment and you take it and you're like, okay, I live a couple more years now. And then there's going to be something else that goes wrong. So you need another solution on top of that. That's going to cost more money. 
it's going to buy them a couple more years of life. And then another thing is going to go wrong and you're going to have to provide them more health care and it's going to cost more money. And maybe that's going to get them another year of life. And then something else is going to go wrong and you have to give them more health care and it's going to cost more money. And eventually you're going to reach the point where every single human being on earth is going to require infinite health care. And that is something that's not possible. There is no way to do that. So at some point there has to be a limit because we can't just keep pumping more money into helping people live longer and longer. Eventually the money runs out. And that's just the way scarcity operates. You, you run out of things eventually. Like I said, every society is going to have to come to this conclusion of what is the right amount of health care. Are you going to ration based on age? Or are you going to say, you know, once you hit 100, you're on your own, right? Or you're going to say, maybe it's not 100. Maybe it has to do more with your health care. We're not going to put a firm number on it. We're going to say, based on the relationship that you're having with your doctor and hospital or insurance company, depending on what country you're living in, they're going to decide we're not going to pay for that. And then they're going to put the cost onto you. And if you're a billionaire, you're like, oh, I'll pay for it then. And if you're not, then you don't get that life extension. However, there comes a point where even being a billionaire is not going to be able to extend your life. We don't have the money. We don't have the resources or the treatments. Uh, they haven't been explored yet because the money hasn't been put into it. Elon Musk has actually said something similar about this with space exploration, which is that if you back up, actually right now, you know what, nobody can spend enough money to get themselves to go live on Mars right now. Elon Musk is working on it, but he can't do it right now. That's something that's in the future. There will be a point in the future where you will be able to spend money and actually get on Mars, and then hopefully the cost will keep dropping. That's kind of his goal. Something similar will happen with life extension, except for the fact that every time you extend someone's life, you need to go farther to get to the next bit of life. And so it's not just a matter of we're going to Mars, it's that we're, then we're going to Jupiter, then we're going to Saturn, then we're going to you know the next planet out until you finally, eventually your time runs out and you can't get there anymore. So I think that with the parade option of medical treatments, eventually you run out. And that's reasonable to make limitations on that because otherwise you're going to be spending 100% of GDP on trying to keep people in your country alive. And there's more than one value in life. It's not just living longer. There are also important other things to do. You have to ensure collective security. You have to ensure that people are actually happy, all these other sorts of things. I just wanted to say very quickly, I really liked your analogy comparing, I guess, space exploration with life extension and how, you know, it's a step-by-step -step process. I think that's quite genius. But before um, I get to talk more about space, I want to just talk a little bit more about human nature. Fortunately, me and Marvin had the opportunity to read your chapter in Calvin Mercer's book, where you talked about human nature. And just for the audience, since I'm assuming most of them have not read the book, could you just give a brief description of what exactly metaphysical and biological first nature is? Also, soon after that, if you could give a description about cultural and individual second nature. So first of all, good job actually reading that book <laughs> or reading a chapter out of that book. That's you know, that's, that's uh, you know, written for scholars. So obviously you're exhibiting your scholarly abilities by reading that book. But Calvin Mercer and Tracy Trothan's book is uh, called Religion and Transhumanism. I have a chapter in there called Transhumanism and Catholic Natural Law. And basically that chapter asks kind of a pretty basic question, which is, as we're going forward in time, humans are becoming more and more powerful. And if we divide human nature into first nature and second nature, then more and more of what we would consider to be first nature is becoming subject to second nature. So let me explain what that means. So first nature is kind of 
how we define a human being. First nature is what is our definition? Are we rational animals, talking animals, political animals? There are all these kind of very ancient Greek definitions of what a human being is. Other cultures have different answers for this. Humans are relational beings or humans are part of a community. There are lots of different ways to define what a human being is. That's fundamentally a metaphysical statement of a definition of what a human being is. In other words, you can't scientifically determine the definition of a human being. That's something you have to come up with based on first principles, how you define a human being. However, there's another aspect to that is once you define a human being, then you've also defined something biologically connected to that. The next question is, biologically speaking, what is the biological substrate that kind of upholds that metaphysical definition? So if you say that humans are talking animals, then you say that we are animals, so we're biological, we have metabolism like other animals, and we also have the ability to talk. We have mouths, we have brains with language centers in them, and those sorts of things. And so that's kind of the biological substrate upon which that metaphysical definition rests. Okay, that's first nature. Traditionally, first nature has been looked at as being immutable. It's not something that can change. It's universal. All human beings share it together. Then there's second nature, which is different. Second nature is about the culture that we grow up in and what language we speak, for example. Biologically speaking, humans are supposed to have a language. Culturally speaking, it doesn't necessarily have to be English. It could be a different language. It could be Spanish. It could be French. It could be Chinese or Russian or you know any of the thousands of languages that are in the world. Biologically, we're built or designed, however you want to phrase it, in order to uptake a language. And then that specific language that we uptake is variable. Then there's another aspect of second nature, which is it's not just the culture that we're a part of. It's also us as individuals, which is that I can mumble when I speak, or I can speak very clearly. I can speak slowly or fast. These are all things that are kind of my personal habits and how that cultural second nature manifests in myself individually kind of as I exhibit it. All right, so then you get to the point where you say, okay, obviously we're living in a very advanced culture right now. We have a lot of technology, which is part of second nature, and it exhibits as individual technologists and scientists living and working in society. And they begin to take that second nature power and direct it back at our first nature. And medical technology is the prime example of this, right? Doctors and surgeons and people throughout history have been trying to take their own skills as they have learned them from their society and apply those back on you know, people who are sick and help them to become more healthy. And as we're getting more and more of this power, more and more of what was once our first nature is now becoming subject to second nature. And when that happens, then all of a sudden we get new ethical questions that we've never had before. And we ask questions like, should we extend human life? In the past, it was always an assumption, yeah, we should extend human life. Life is good, so we have hospitals that do that. But now it becomes more of a question of, well, should we use this in order to do this? Or should we control our ability to reproduce? And in what ways should we do that? And what technologies should we use? And should we you know, try to upload ourselves into computers or other sorts of very complicated technological interventions? Because if you upload a human being into a computer, they are no longer a rational animal notice. They might still be rational, but they're now a rational artifact instead of a rational animal because they don't metabolize in the same way that other animals metabolize. And so this is kind of the thing that I was trying to bring out in that chapter, which is to say things are only going to get more complicated because we have taken this, this uh, second nature power, which we are exhibiting through or expressing through individual human beings, 
who are now taking that power and directing it back on our biological first nature. And it ultimately even gets into our metaphysical definition of what a human being is. Wow. Okay. This, I did not think this before the interview. And now I'm thinking of it now, now that you've mentioned it, maybe I just need to hear it from the, the author himself of the chapter. Because now the issue is if you have technology, and I'm speaking as a biology student in terms of gene editing, and there has been some research, I know it's not as simple as, you know, you change a gene and now you're a different person, but altering certain genes links to certain behaviors, which is quote unquote, your first nature. So you can use second nature to alter your first nature is what, is what you're sort of getting at. Is that right? That's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yes. And it's not just a matter of just changing biology, because ultimately, if you're talking about really radical transformations, like transhumanism is talking about, you're really getting into the definition of what we think a human being is. Okay, then I have to ask, because at first I was thinking, yeah, first nature is immutable, so you can ignore it. But of all the natures, which one would be have the strongest influence on whether someone accepts or rejects life extension? At first, that was cultural, but I'm not sure if that's always the case. What do you think? So this is a really interesting question, I think. Yes, there's a huge cultural aspect to it. There's also a, there's also a personal aspect to it, what your individual perspective is on the world, and also whether you're suffering or whether you're happy or not, right? If you're suffering, then maybe you're like, you know what, a couple more years of life isn't really going to make me happier. I've known, you know, old people who are, who are like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I don't need to be alive anymore. And it's because they're suffering. They, they don't really, if they could be cured, they'd probably be happy to, to live longer. But eventually, you know, time runs out. And there is a huge cultural aspect also, but it also very much gets into the, how much power do we have to solve these medical problems? If there are treatments that you can take a suffering older person who doesn't want to go on any longer and you can treat them and make the pain go away and help them restore, be restored to health. And if you actually enact that, you know, you ask them, Hey, do you want to try this? And they say, yes. And it actually works. Then you have in some way adjusted their biological first nature, right? You have given them the ability to go on longer. And almost every culture in the world says, you know what, medical treatments are great. We're happy with that. I don't know of actually any culture that says, you know, people should be done when they're 70 or they should be done when they're 80. That's not, that's not really a normal thing. Because once again, this gets into to first nature again, right? We're living organisms. We want to continue living. That's kind of built into us, genetically speaking, unless something has gone seriously wrong and we're depressed or suicidal or have other bad things happening to us. But because we have this kind of genetic first nature drive to continue living, and uh, now we've built the power where we can actually turn that back on our, ourselves and actually help us in that way, then the question is, when should we stop? That's the should question, right? That's the ethical question. And there's not a simple answer to it. One thing I would say is that it's also really hard to evaluate these technologies in general. They have to be looked at very specifically and even in very specific cases. So for example, if you have a surgery, let's say you can make an artificial heart and you find somebody who has a perfectly healthy heart and you say, hey, would you like to have heart surgery? We'll give you an artificial heart. They're very unlikely to say yes, because they'll say, hey, my heart's fine. What do I need an artificial heart for? And they'll say, well, this heart will last 100 years and very likely your heart, you know, at some point you're going to die. And then they'll say, well, I don't know if my heart's that's going to die. Maybe it's going to be my brain that gets damaged or maybe some other bodily system is going to be the one that fails. So you really have to have the right treatment for the right specific context in that person. The entire medical profession is used to these questions because that's what they do in medicine. But once again, as we get more and more of these powers, we're going to have to ask this about more and more things going forward. 
I apologize for my next question, Brian, because this is one that is, I don't think we sent you in advance, but I've thought of it just now as well. So normally I phrase it to other people as, do you think we are, I don't know what the right word is, maybe destined to transcend our basic biology? But given our nature talk, I'll try to word it using the same terminology, which is, is it in our nature, whichever one of those it is, is it in our nature to change our nature? So that is, that's, you know, once again, a huge philosophical question and, you know, good job coming up with it because, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's kind of the ultimate question, right? Which is it, is there something about human nature that is supposed to stay the way it is, or is it our nature to actually turn back on ourselves to do things in that way? It's a metaphysical question. You have to ask yourself, what is the definition of a human being? Because if the definition of a human being is that we have a biological body and we have a finite lifespan. I mean, we're all used to being finite, right? I can only talk to you guys right now. I'm not having another Zoom interview with other people right now. I can only talk to you guys. We have to get used to our finitude in a lot of ways, and we have to accept it also. So we're used to that in terms of our social interactions, in terms of our spatial interactions. But in terms of our temporal interaction, we don't like to think about it, right? Because eventually we're going to die. And that's the, the end of so much. It's very confusing. It doesn't ultimately make sense in a lot of ways. We can't understand it. And so we go, we turn towards religion, we turn towards technology, if we want technology to, you know, quote unquote, save us. There are all those sorts of questions uh, that are associated with that. But I've made this analogy in other places, right? Which is that if you look at a caterpillar and you say, okay, there's a caterpillar, the caterpillar's job is to crawl around on the leaf, it eats things and it metabolizes and that's its life. But let's say that you've only been looking at this caterpillar for a few weeks and then all of a sudden the caterpillar stops moving, it forms a shell around itself, and you're like, what happened to it? Did it die? What's going on inside that little case that it's made? And then it turns into a butterfly, and you say, oh, that's really different. I did not see that happening. You say, okay, the caterpillar's nature was not just to crawl around on the leaf eating. Now the caterpillar's nature is to form a chrysalis and then turn into a butterfly and fly away and find another plant where it lays its eggs and then makes more caterpillars. We have to ask that about human nature, right? Are we all caterpillars right now and we're waiting to turn into butterflies? You know, this is what transhumanists really see as being kind of their objective in life, right? Which is that we can take our kind of innate abilities and turn them back on ourselves and turn into something different. Whereas other people will say, that's not going to happen. That's, that's not something that can happen in this universe. Like I was saying earlier, uh, we live in a material universe where ultimately we can't live forever because the universe is going to run out of energy and entropy, you know, wins in the end. Or we can say that kind of caterpillar to butterfly interaction happens at death. And it happens when you transcend through this kind of religious understanding of what happens at death, where you go on to an afterlife. And that's when you get to be the quote unquote butterfly or whatever analogy you want to make to these sorts of things. But this is something that's really, really core to human nature, right? This is the reason the people are having these debates at all are because there's something deep inside of us in our nature that doesn't want to die. And you can say that's just biology, it's just genetic programming, or you can say it's something metaphysical that was put there, you know, and it's related to religious beliefs. Choose whatever religion you want to. These are super complicated questions and they don't have a clear answer, which is why we can clearly answer a lot of scientific questions. But when you get into metaphysics, metaphysics is not subject to science. And so you have to, you have these interminable debates where people can't come to a conclusion. However, what I will say is that as we become more powerful, we get more skills and we turn them more and more back on ourselves. 
we were kind of exploring this space in a lot of ways, particularly with the biological science that we're turning back on ourselves. And ultimately, those biological connections to metaphysical questions are going to be coming more and more confusing or more and more into highlight. It's going to be really kind of fascinating. There will be metaphysical potentials or metaphysical questions that are cut off by science at some point that say this definition of human nature might no longer be a good definition of human nature because we've changed that about ourselves, but we still agree that we're human. So if we say that humans are rational animals, you can look at economics and economics says actually humans aren't very good rational animals. That's a bad definition of a human. And so you don't even have to use biology for that one, right? There's pretty good evidence that there's a, a different definition. However, if you say that humans are talking animals, uh, I think there's pretty good evidence that people are probably going to want to continue talking in the future. Or if you say, look, we can help people communicate brain to brain directly. We don't have to talk with our mouths anymore. We can talk to, you know, or communicate at least direct neuron through the internet to uh, other people's brains. Then that's a change. You know, we're not talking animals anymore. We're not speaking animals, but we're still communicating animals and that we're communicating with each other. And if you want to go kind of the next crazy step, if you could do these kind of Neuralink things on babies when they're born, maybe they would all grow up having like being able to have telepathy with each other and they'd all grow up as just being one brain together, right? Which would be once again, a very big change to human nature, biologically speaking. Maybe that means, you know, are they still going to be individuals? Are they not going to be individuals? I don't know. Somebody's going to run that experiment at some point though, you know, whether people want it or not, or, or at least there's going to be a very strong temptation to it. I don't want to say that there's a technological inevitability, but the ethical question, the power is going to arise. And then we're going to have to ask ourselves, should we actually do this or not? And if we do do that, it's going to raise ultimately metaphysical questions about what is the definition of a human being. I feel like there are endless possibilities to changing the definition of what does it mean to be human? <laughs> uh, before I lose track of my thoughts, I wanted to ask, I guess, obviously, we've discussed a bunch about human nature. It's mutable. It's changing. We as humans grow. So say I were to accept life extension therapy, I extend my life by 40 years, but then my nature changed. I no longer want to live those extra 40 years, whether it be I grew tired of watching those around me grow old or whatever it may be. Should there be an option for us to undo life extension therapies just because we chose it while our nature was one way and now it's potentially changed again? So this is an interesting question. And I have a little bit of background in Catholic medical ethics. The Catholic Church does not believe that people should be forced to take a medical treatment. If at some point uh, the person's like, you know, I don't think I need more medical treatments. I think I'm done. You don't have to give them a further medical treatment. The question then becomes is, how are you extending their life? Are you extending their life by the parade option like where, where I was saying where you have to do something actively over and over again? Or have you uploaded them into a computer and the upload is telling you, hey, I'm done now. I'm bored of being in a computer. You can turn me off. And I'm fine with that. And you say to yourself, hmm, do we listen to them or not? Because in one way, they're asking for you to kill them. Or maybe if you give them control over it, maybe they do that to themselves. Traditionally, suicide has not been considered to be a moral option in most of the world religions. That's not something that people should seek out. Uh, it's something to be avoided. It's considered to be, you know, whether, whether it's in some cultures you consider it to be dishonorable or it's something that's going to prevent you from getting to heaven or things like that. Suicide is not considered to be a good option a lot of the time. Lots of secular belief systems don't agree with that. What I would say is that, first of all, I don't think that the upload is alive in the way that a human is anymore, right? There's no biological metabolism going on. 
in my understanding, that would be more of a simulation of a human being rather than human being themselves. So if they said something strange, like turn me off now, I'm done. You'd say, well, you're not biologically alive in the first place. We don't actually have to delete you. We could keep the files there and just stop running them. Maybe that's what you do, right? If they tell you delete me, then that's kind of a very, very final answer also. That's a hard one to know how to answer at this point. I think we would have to get more into the details of the situations as they came along, if they're even possible, if they ever come along, right? I do think that there will be simulations of people at some point, but I have a feeling they're not going to exhibit, they're not going to exhibit consciousness or free will in the way that I think biological humans will. But we're going to run the experiment and we'll find out whether I'm right or wrong. Yeah, we'll see in the future. Let, hopefully nothing dystopian happens. We can just observe and not learn from serious mistakes. Actually, I have, I have one more thing to say about that, which is, and this goes back to the, the question of first nature and second nature. There's a very interesting science fiction story by Eliezer Yudkowsky called Three Worlds Collide, and it's available for free on the internet. I don't know if you, have you guys read it before? I see you nodding. I've heard of it. I haven't read it though. Okay. So it's interesting because one of the species in that story, basically three different aliens all meet each other at the same time. One of the species in that story has the ability to change themselves at kind of the biological or metaphysical level just by exerting their own will. And this is one of the interesting differences in humans. You can think of us as having kind of fundamentally three different information storage systems as humans. We have DNA, we have our neural tissue for information storage, and then we have this external world with all these books, you know, that are behind me and things like that, or computers, you know, that's where most of the information is now. If all those things are combined with each other, then we could just think to ourselves, you know what, I wish I had a couple more arms that would be easier to type. I could type maybe two things at once if I trained myself. Or you could think to yourself, I want my heart to stop beating. And if you do that, then you're dead. So notice, notice what's going on here is that actually transhumanism wants to take more and more of that first nature, which is not in our control. It's kind of the genetic side of things and put that more into the neural side of things or more into the artificial information storage side of things. By doing that, it gives us more and more power to change what we fundamentally are it's not necessarily going to be an improvement. A lot of it could be mistakes, or it could be things like, uh, oh, I forgot to breathe because I put breathing under like neural control, or I put breathing under artificial control, and I forgot to flick that switch that made it automatic. These are not necessarily technologies that are going to be beneficial. They open up a lot of possibility for accidents and mistakes and for malicious you know, interference, right? Which is that you go into somebody else's computer system and you turn off all the switches that are running their heartbeats or things like that. And all of a sudden you've killed all your enemies by just making their hearts stop beating. Science fiction, I mean, is great for exploring these subjects. But when I read that story by Eliezer Yudkowsky, I look at those aliens and I say to myself, there's no reason that they'd still be alive. It's very possible that they would just spontaneously all die because of some sort of mistake that they've made. And these science fiction stories are great for exploring these sorts of questions. And once again, it gets into questions of, ought. Oh, maybe we shouldn't have that power over ourselves. Maybe we say, when it gets to fundamental human systems, we just let nature, you know, DNA can handle that one. The heart will continue beating. It's under involuntary neural control. Leave those systems as they are. We're fine with having power over our conscious thinking or, you know, I can control my breathing sometimes, but not all the time. And that's an okay thing to be. First of all, yes, my neural information system hurts after what you said. There's a lot of things to take in. Actually, there was a really cool game that you reminded me of. I think it's called 
Manual Samuel, which sort of takes into account what you said, which is pretty much while you're playing the game, to make sure your character still lives, you have to press a certain button for him to breathe every like 10 seconds. You have to press a certain button for him to walk, like every single step you need to walk. So it's a really frustrating game in the sense where like, wow, you have to be the information system here that controls Sam's life. And this is ignoring the actual complications of the game. So very fun idea. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, I hope I have the name right. If not, at least the concept's out there. But regarding, you talked about Elior Yudowski's story in terms of the aliens, which is a perfect segue into our next section, which is on space. And I know you had a paper which was about space exploration being a very high priority for uh, if we care about mankind's existence, which is interesting because earlier you also talked about how the sea levels are rising. So some people take the, take the approach where if we do care about humanity and we don't want to go extinct, we should fix our own world. But you seem to be taking the other approach where we should be looking for other habitable places. Do you mind explaining sort of your priority list here? Sure. So I think we should be doing both at the same time. One thing I would say is that there are some people who try to make a moral argument or say that there's no moral argument to keeping humans around. So kind of what I was talking about in that paper was that I think it should be an extremely high priority for humans to make sure that humans do not go extinct because we're the only moral ethical agents or organisms that we know of in the entire universe. That makes us pretty important. If there are other ones out there, then you know we're still pretty important because we're different than they are. But basically, you can't make a moral argument without people who can do moral argumentation, or you can't have moral judgments without moral judges. So I try to argue in that paper that we need to have human beings around. It's really important that we continue to do that. And you can't actually make a moral argument against, against that. Basically, it's an irrefutable argument. If you say, no, we don't need to have humans around, and it's immoral for humans to be around. I've even heard people say that humans are unethical creatures and we should allow ourselves to go extinct. This is a philosophical position that some people have put forward. I say to myself, you're destroying ethics. <laughs> Your argument destroys ethics. You can't make an ethical argument in favor of destroying ethics. That doesn't make sense. It's absurd. So I, I say, look, so we need to protect this aspect of the universe. We're the only ethical agents that we know of in the entire universe. And so we really need to care about what we're doing. I think that space exploration and protecting life on Earth actually go together because as we go into space, we're going to discover how good we have it on Earth, <laughs> which is that we have free air, we have water, and we have access to water, at least hopefully most of the time, unless we're having a drought like we're having right now in California, and so we're getting more and more water restrictions. We have free energy flying in from space. We also have free energy underground. We're surrounded by all these energy sources. We have it really good here on Earth. And if we go to the moon, we don't have free air anymore. We don't have free water anymore. We still have sunlight hitting us, but on a very different schedule. It's not daily anymore. It's a two-week schedule because of the way the moon orbits the Earth. And if we go to Mars, it's a different situation, even from Earth or the moon. And these different situations are going to help highlight how important it is to take care of these resources on Earth. And my analogy for that is, when Europeans came to the New World, they came into a completely different type of civilization situation. Now, there are all sorts of ethical problems with colonialism. I'm not trying to defend that or anything like that. But ultimately, they set up a society that was very different. For example, in the United States, we set up a democracy. And that idea of a constitutional democracy and elections and things like that, Europeans looked at that and they said, hey, 
they just did this thing over there that we don't have. We all have these absolute monarchies, which, you know, don't serve the people very well. And so you have things like the French Revolution, or you have a slow transition towards constitutional monarchy in the United Kingdom and other countries, whether it's through revolution or whether it's through a slow transition process, a lot of countries are now constitutional democracies because they saw that it could be done in this new world, in that new world being the United States. I think something similar to that will happen with space exploration and ethics, which is that people will see they'll need to have a super environmental ethic, which is what one of my colleagues, Jim Schwartz, has called it. Jim Schwartz is another space, does space ethics, basically. And we have a paper that we were part of together, along with another group of people. And he uses that phrase, super environmental ethic. And I think it's exactly what's going to happen. Hopefully, people will see how precious all these resources are that we have here on Earth. And they'll say, we really need to protect these more. And we can do this because we pioneered this technology through space exploration, which is that we can recycle all of our water in all of our cities if we want to. We can have cleaner air. Uh, we don't have to have polluting technologies that pollute the air because we pioneered how to do that, whether it's in a space station or in a settlement on another planet or on the moon. Um, and I think that those technologies will be pioneered and that'll be overall a good thing for everybody. So I'm going to quickly connect some of the topics we spoke earlier about, specifically life extension. And I mean, looking at it very, I mean, from first glance, there's a very obvious benefit to life extension, especially with long space travel, although I would still call traveling to Mars long, but going outside of our galaxy or whatever it may be, I would assume that extending life would be beneficial. That way we don't need to worry as much about, I guess, having another cycle of generations of humans being born on the space flight or whatever it may be. So do you think that if life extension were to be offered, would it be okay to offer it to those who might be interested in space travel first, since it would be, I guess there's a clear application of it there? So I think once again, we have to get into the practicality question, right? Which is that if we have the magic bullet solution, which is that we're going to upload you into a computer and then we'll send you in the computer in the rocket off somewhere else, then, you know, that's one way to explore space. It's going to be pretty different. I don't think those are going to be real humans on that. Those are going to be some sort of simulated human. So I don't think that would be a good option. But if it's going to be something more like the parade option, where you're having to give people more and more life extension on and on, then eventually there's a limitation to how much you can have on your spaceship, right? <laughs> the scarcity problem is going to be even more acute, I guess would be the way to describe it, right? Whether you're on a vessel traveling through space or whether you're on a space station in a stationary location or you're on a settlement on a planet. By all means, if you can pioneer therapies for repairing radiation damage or things like that, that's fantastic. That's exactly something that you would want to have in space because you're in a higher radiation environment in the first place. And if you can then take that back to Earth and share it with people, or if it was developed on Earth, and then you can use that to repair cancer or to prevent cancer from happening or things like that, then that's fantastic. But once again, this gets into the relationship between space R&D and how that can help people on Earth, rather than being more of a rationing question. So I don't, I don't think that the rationing question exactly lines up with how that would work, because I think in some ways it's more scarce in space, and yet there'd be a higher need for it. So there'd be a lot of kind of balancing and trade-offs that has to be done, both in terms of what resources you have available to you and the, the context that you're in and what needs exist in that context. Well, we've actually explored another episode, a similar question, which was we asked, I think, a guest our age about the benefits of cryonics or cryogenics versus life extension in space. So that was very interesting. But I have an even more interesting question for you. And once again, I'm hitting you with all these like 
very grand what if kind of questions, which is about this responsibility for life. So I know there's this argument, all life is intrinsically valuable. And now that we're talking about space, there's a good chance, possibly that there's life other places. And the question I ask to people who are not space enthusiasts would be, do we have a responsibility to extend the lives of other species that are not ourselves? For example, our pets and whatnot, those are going extinct. Do we have some drive to like preserve all life if we can? And now that talking about space, I'm thinking, do we have responsibility for life that's not on our planet as well? If we find an alien species, should we always try to keep it alive, even indefinitely? Okay, so there's a couple questions there. <laughs> Let's start with life on Earth and then then make sure that I talk about life in space. Life on Earth, I would say we have a responsibility to ourselves, keep ourselves alive, given reasonable checks on that. For example, we shouldn't be spending billions of dollars extending our own life when that same money could be spent on something very basic, like giving people healthy drinking water in other places. You know, there's some basic things that should be met first before we go like totally way out on kind of selfishness, if you want to think about it that way. And if we have pets that are under our care, then yes, their health is our responsibility. Should we, you know, spend a lot of money on their health? That's a judgment that we have to make, right? Should we be spending thousands of dollars helping our pet? Or should we be donating those thousands of dollars to give malarial treatment to people in Africa or other places in the world? Those are important trade-offs to think about. So when it comes to the natural world on Earth, I think the first thing to do would be to stop destroying things in the first place, right? It's like before we even get to the life extension question, can we just stop destroying things in the first place? And I think there's a lot of possibilities there for doing that. After that, in terms of producing flourishing ecosystems, then I think there are possibilities there. There are some people who are really, really radical utilitarians who would say, also, we should stop natural predation or parasitism or pathogens. I think that's probably going a step too far. That might be overstepping our kind of boundaries in terms of our authority uh, and how we should be interacting with other species on the planet. I think this kind of questions of legitimate authority is something that people don't talk about a lot, but I think is actually something that religion does talk about and says, look, our legitimate authority over creation is limited. We're not supposed to be doing certain sorts of crazy things. At the same time, you can also read, if you look at Genesis, if you want to take a very kind of strict interpretation of Genesis, God actually does give humans dominion and stewardship over the environment. And maybe that does mean that we're allowed to do these things. And so it's not necessarily clear what side even Christianity should come down upon, much less secular culture, which can be much more diverse because they're not limited to a particular you know, interpretation of religious doctrines. And of course, every religion can have their own thing. But I think this idea of what is, what's our legitimate area for interfering with other species is a good one. When it gets into space, then we get into, once again, even bigger kind of metaphysical or ethical questions. So there have been a couple approaches to this. One is a non-interference approach, which is that we shouldn't, we should at least not damage other life if we discover it. We shouldn't interfere with them. We should maybe either stay separate from them or just not interfere with them. Another one would be to say, no, if we discover life, we should actually help it. We should, uh, you know, give them some sort of beneficial things, give them resources, I don't know, help them out somehow. These are kind of things where you can say, are we having more of a negative ethic where we avoid hurting things? Or are we having more of a positive ethic where we're supposed to help things? And we can see this in world religions also, because there are two formulations of the golden rule. 
there's kind of the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is a positive ethic, which says that you should actually help people or help other organisms. Or there's a kind of a negative version of that, which is do not do unto others as you would not want them to do unto you. And that's a more of a non-interference ethic, right? Which is like, I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm not going to interfere with you either. And this kind of interplay between this negative and positive ethic, it's kind of an interesting perspective on the future, right? How much should humans actually be doing to either interfere with ourselves, with other people on earth, other cultural groups, other environments, and then ultimately possibly even life that's not on uh, on earth. Man, I have to follow up with this. Now I'm thinking in terms of, because we talked earlier about, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume this, that life in general intrinsically wants to keep living probably. But now I'm thinking, would it be immoral for me to do to treat my pets or another species to treat them with life extension technology because i'm thinking that yes my dog or cat wants to keep living right is that true or is it immoral for me to make that decision on behalf of another being so yeah that's that's exactly the question right (laughs) are you looking at it in more terms of a positive ethic or a negative ethic and i think that maybe what you do is you get out of that paradigm for a moment and say you have a relationship with this organism, right? Which is that you've been caring for it for a long time. You give it food and those sorts of things. You have a responsibility towards it. And so you should continue that care in a reasonable way. So that includes, you know, reasonable veterinarian bills and those sorts of things, but maybe not in an unreasonable way. And, and this reasonable person standard is something that shows up in courtrooms sometimes. It shows up in other sorts of legal documents. But it's also very squishy, right? You need a judge and you need a jury and you need the court of public opinion out in the in the broader world to say, we agree that that was a good idea or we disagree that was not a good idea. And I think that most people in society would say, yeah, you should keep caring for your pet. But if you're spending a million dollars to try to make your pet immortal or <laughs> something like that, that might be a step too far. So I have a little bit of a one-off question. I believe there is a paper you've written about how we should use nuclear submarines as a habitable space. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I very briefly read over the synopsis there. But um, there's always this argument that people make that, hey, before we go and explore space, we still have so much of the ocean and, you know, the subterranean areas of Earth to explore. Is there any validity in this argument? Or do you think both of these explorations could happen at the same time? So that's another paper that I wrote along with Alexei Turchin. So I recommend if you're going to interview somebody, he's a good person to interview. All right. <laughs> you haven't yet. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Alexei and I were basically thinking about if a giant catastrophe hits the earth, what precautions should we take in order to protect humanity? And what we talked about was using submarines as refuges, basically, which would be something terrible goes on on the surface of the earth. It turns out a submarine is actually really, really great place for refuge from a nuclear war or uh, an asteroid hitting the earth, or all these other, you know, biological weapons, all these sorts of things that are actually pretty good for a submarine. It's mobile, it's deep underwater where it's hard to get to. If there's like a gamma ray burst and radiation hits the earth, they're insulated by, you know, hundreds of feet of water, protecting them against that disaster happening out there. And so we just proposed this, look, this would be one way that if we wanted to make sure that humans survived, we could take a certain number of obsolete nuclear submarines, take the weapons out of them, replace them with basically what are the supplies that you would need to restart civilization if that need arose at some point. So it'd be kind of like 
plan B, right? Mm. Plan A is that you keep humans alive and, you know, we don't die in the first place, right? Plan B is that some terrible disaster happens because plan A failed and at least there are still a few people left alive. And so all of human history is not for nothing. Instead, there are a few people left who have the information and the tools and the skills necessary to rebuild human civilization and get things going again. It almost sounds like, to me at least, a safer version of space exploration to a certain degree. It's easier, right? Which is that we already have these submarines out there. This technology is easily explored. So we had a follow-on paper to that using islands. So if you then have an island that you say, look, this island is specifically a refuge and we're never going to do anything else with it. It's just going to be so that the submarine can go hide there if necessary. And, And once again, it'll be all stocked with necessary things for rebuilding civilization. That's kind of a solution that we could do right now. We're also working on space exploration. The idea of Mars would be the backup Earth, as Elon Musk has called it. Once again, solving that same problem, which is that some terrible disaster befalls the Earth, but at least not everybody's dead. We will have a self-sustaining Mars colony. The timelines for those are very, very different. Elon Musk has talked about the decades time frame, talking about 2050 or 2040 or 2050, I think he was saying, for a self-sustaining Mars colony, because he estimated... I think transporting 10 million tons of material to Mars, because you can't just have a self-sustaining civilization without at least 10 million tons of material. On Earth, it's a lot easier. If you needed to take an island, you know, some remote island somewhere, and move 10 million tons of material there, and have a few thousand people hanging out on the island or in submarines, that is a much shorter time frame. That's something we could probably do within 10 years, maybe even faster, maybe within five years. You keep segueing to the next topic perfectly, but you're mentioning all these risky things. And I know for certain you had a paper about the risk associated with technologies and how you can mitigate them. Before we get to that, because I know Sufal has plenty of questions, once again, for our audience, they may not know the term human risk. So before we discuss it, do you just mind defining it for them? So human risk would be any, any risk that has to do with humanity, right? Then there's kind of the, the existential risk question beyond that and the global catastrophic risk. So human risk would be any sort of risk that we engage in as human beings, whether it's related to technology or who we associate with or what behaviors we take in our lives. But this idea of global catastrophic risk would be a risk that endangers large areas of the earth. It threatens, you know, killing billions of people or devastating very large areas of the earth's surface. And an existential risk is a global catastrophic risk that's so big that it could actually kill everyone and cause human extinction. So those two risks or those two forms of risk are really the kind of thing that I've talked about in several papers. There's the submarines paper, there's the, the islands paper, then there's a couple of papers that I wrote for the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers, IEEE, which are ethics papers, basically talking about what do we need to do in terms of technology ethics to make sure that technology does not get out of our control? What are some measures that we can take to make sure that technology is used for better purposes and not worst, there are very bad things that technology can facilitate. How do we make sure that it's actually being used for good and not for evil? So I wanted to ask, again, since we very often talk about life extension, can life extension in any way mitigate some of this human risk that we just have in daily life? And on the other hand, can it increase our risk? Yes, the answer is yes to both. (laughs) So the more medical technology we have, the more likely we are to survive accidents or aging or other sorts of bad things that could happen to us. That's a pretty normal way to medically think about things or in terms of healthcare, think about how we deal with things. It's just going to be more stuff that keeps us alive and healthy, which is great. 
Then there's the, well, what bad could happen from these things? And the answer is there are some dangerous technologies that transhumanism or radical life extension might be exploring, artificial intelligence being a primary one. Artificial intelligence, when it's directly used for figuring out how to make life extension happen, there's some pretty clear ways where that could be beneficial. So DeepMind, for example, has just developed a good AI model for how proteins fold. And this has been a huge problem in biology for decades. How do you figure out how you go from a string of amino acids into a curled up protein? And they've now developed a model which is highly accurate for that, which is fantastic. There's clear beneficial uses for that, which is that you can say, okay, if we can model the protein being this shape, then we know how it might interact with this molecule, which is say a pharmaceutical, a drug or some of some sort coming and bumping into it and how they might interact with each other. And you can figure out how to use that for good. You can also do exactly the opposite, which is that you can figure out how do we poison people better based on this. And so you say, oh, you just take the same thing and you say, how do we disrupt the protein and make it fall apart? Or how do we inactivate the protein? Because there are a whole lot of poisons out there that already do that. Now, it's not likely that we're going to find a whole bunch of weird new poisons that are much better than the ones that we already have, because people have been experimenting with this intentionally and unintentionally for millennia. But it is possible. It's something AI can do. And there are all sorts of things that are beyond that. Then there's the other technologies like synthetic biology. So synthetic biology lets you develop all sorts of things that are good, potentially all sorts of things that are bad also. And then kind of the ultimate difficult technology uh, is going to be nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is going to have clear applications in healthcare where hopefully, you know, at some point, maybe you can go into a person's body with these little tiny nanites and they repair something that's broken or they can do surgery on people and somebody gets shot or gets stabbed or something like that. You just drop nanites on them and they go in there and they work with an AI that says all these things get stitched back together in this way. And at the end, they all come out of the body and the person's back to normal again, which is fantastic. But you can, once again, imagine them doing exactly the opposite thing, which is that, oh, go you know rip that person apart. And that's what's going to happen. And so we have these technologies, which are intrinsically extremely powerful, then the question of should is the one that comes up, right? What ought we to do with this power? And it's pretty clear that we should use it for healthcare purposes, but we should not use it for destructive purposes. However, if somebody disagrees and says, yeah, we like the idea of lethal autonomous nanotechnological goo weapons, and then you say, no, you really shouldn't have those. They're more dangerous to you, or they're more dangerous to everyone in the world. They're not just going to stop when they're killing your enemies, right? One of them is going to mutate and then come back and kill you. You have to convince them not to develop that technology in the first place. But people are super, along with being obsessed with living a long time, people are also really obsessed with power. And so this idea of having more power, even if it's destructive power, is really enticing to some sorts of people. And, and this kind of psychological desire to have more power or to threaten people is something that ultimately is part of human nature that gets in the way of us having a good future together. And we have to figure out some way to develop the right social and political structures to put that under control. Man, I'm I'm kind of getting scared now because all the transhumanists have come on have said super longevity, super happiness, super intelligence. Now, if you take the reverse of super happiness, what's that super depression? Like, oh God. Super suffering. It's a, a suffering risk. So yeah, you might actually see this in the literature sometimes. They say, look, there's not just X risk for existential risk. There's also an S risk which is a suffering risk, which is the worst form of suffering 
for all living things for eternity. Well, hopefully uh, we do things for good and not bad. But last topic for today, which is about religion. And for all the listeners who are listening, I'm so sorry it took so long to get here. Like I said before, you know, ethicists are like the coolest people. So, okay, last one, because you mentioned how you have a Roman Catholic background. And we've interviewed a bunch of people, mostly Protestants, I believe, both progressive and reformed. But for Roman Catholics, I know you can't speak on behalf of every single Roman Catholic on the planet, but I want to get a sense of whether they would be more accepting or rejecting of life extension compared to both the average person and maybe compared to some other religions, maybe compared to the other denominations, for example. Yeah, so we started to get into this a little bit, I think, with the idea of what exactly is the treatment that we're looking at, right? If it's just another medical treatment that helps people live longer, then that's probably good, unless it's super expensive or you can't, you can't share it with people in a just way or you're preventing some people from getting access to it. Those are all sorts of associated ethical issues, which are bad. But if you're just helping people live longer, you know, the Catholic Church runs a lot of hospitals and the whole point of a hospital is to help people live longer and healthier. And in that case, those sorts of life extension options, that's just normal life extension, which is just called medical treatment. And so the Catholic Church can get 100% behind that. If you start getting into things like, we're going to hybridize you with a machine, or we're going to upload you into a computer, or we're going to put nanites in your body, and not just temporarily to heal a knife injury or something like that but permanently because your body just won't run anymore and the nanites are going to form a network inside your body and they're going to keep you running. Then you're starting to get into fundamental metaphysical questions about what the definition of a human should be and also what the definition of medical treatment is, right? Because medical treatment has, has kind of an understanding to it. This is what medical treatment does. You go into a hospital or a clinic, they fix you, you come back out and you're normal again. Or if you have a chronic condition, the, the treatment goes on for a long time. But uh, if you're talking about immortality, you're talking about a, or not immortality, very long life extension, this could turn into something like this is a chronic condition, which is that your body keeps trying to die. And the nanotechnology inside of you is holding you together. Are you even a human anymore? If you just turn off the nanotechnology and you just instantly die, were you a human in the first place? <laughs> or did you somehow transition over into this kind of less human state? I mean, and it doesn't necessarily have to be interpreted as less human, right? It could be interpreted as being superhuman or being, you know, um, the next step of humanity, which is the way that transhumanists want to look at this. But I think in general, once again, it's really hard to answer these questions in a general way. It's something that you need to look at more specifically in terms of this one person with these treatments that we have as options right now. Does this seem like the right thing to do? And if it does get into those huge issues of we're changing all of human society, or we are making people who are more machine than human, then that starts getting into these fundamental ethical questions that we will have to engage when we get there. It's very hard to engage with them in the abstract from such a large distance away. Okay, so then I'll take a step back then and ask something that you might have a more concrete idea on, which is about the reason for wanting life extension. I don't know if that matters. I don't know if there's also an immoral reason for wanting it. Like, I don't know if such thing as a bad reason. But, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that because Roman Catholics would not be against the technology per se, and if they were to engage in it, it would be more for the, I guess, appreciation of life because life has some value to it and not maybe like a fear of death. I mean, if you're scared of death, you can't really go to heaven, unfortunately. 
But is there such thing as an immoral reason or bad reason for wanting life extension? So there's a couple things going on there. From the Roman Catholic perspective, life is good, but it's not the ultimate good, right? The ultimate good is to go to heaven eventually. And I think that, you know, based on the material world that we live in right now, eventually people are going to die and they're going to be faced with that. Okay, where are you going to end up in the afterlife? And, you know, some people, you know, even Catholics will say everybody goes to heaven in the end. There's no hell. Or everybody, most people go to purgatory. Some people go straight to heaven. They're very optimistic perspectives on how the afterlife operates. Other people would say, oh, no, lots of people go to hell. <laughs> and, and it, it, you know, it depends on who you talk to. There's nobody, there's no teaching in the church that says everybody, at least anyone has to go to hell, though. That's one thing, right? The Catholic Church says we believe that there are people in heaven. They're called saints. The Catholic Church doesn't believe that even the worst sinners are in hell. Maybe they're in purgatory getting patched up. Or maybe, you know, they eventually do end up in heaven. This is something inscrutable that human beings can't figure out. But the kind of basic idea is that there is a good which is higher than the good of life. Life is a normal good that you want to have. But there are, there are also reasons that we might want to sacrifice our life in order to save others, right? In which case, it wouldn't be committing suicide. It would be that in order to save other people, you had to sacrifice your own life. And there's something called the principle of double effect which gets into that thing, which is that you can foresee your own death, but you don't intend it and those sorts of questions. It relates a lot to how we talk about side effect in medical terminology, which is that, yeah, you'll have this operation, it'll help you live longer, or you'll take this drug, it'll help you live longer, but there are going to be side effects, which is that it might make you sick, or it might give you other negative things. Same thing with the idea of double effect, which is that proportionately speaking, if something good happens along with it, and it's not just a utilitarian calculus. There are several other things that have to be there, too. It has to not be an ends justify the means equation. It has to not be intending the bad thing, that kind of associated criteria that are along with it that make it different from just consequentialism or utilitarianism. So when it comes to the way that the kind of Catholic teaching would be looking at accepting life extension, once again, you'd be looking at the specific case and you would say, in this case, it makes perfect sense to maybe you'll feel really sick for a day, but then you'll live for a year longer. That's kind of the justification behind chemotherapy, right? Which is that you're willing to suffer a little bit in order to have a better good happen. But then the question becomes, let's say it costs a million dollars to get one more day of life. And you could take that million dollars and instead use it to, once again, you know, save hundreds of lives somewhere else. And if that's the case, then you have to make an ethical judgment saying, is this just about me being selfish and wanting to live another day? Or is there something more important, which is the charity of helping other people live a little bit longer, or a little bit healthier, or happier life? Hmm. So is there a line for what technologies and transhumanistic developments the Catholic Church would be accepting of? And when I say that, what I immediately think of, or what I'm trying to ask, I guess, is, for example, if somebody, say, is mind uploaded and they want to continue to practice Christianity or continue to go to church, whatever version of church they may have, would they be accepted by the Catholic Church? And if so, do you think they would even want to be there? So that's a super difficult question. <laughs> Part of me wants to say that, first of all, since I don't think the upload is actually a human being, I think they'd just be a simulated human being, then that takes some of the ethical risk away from the situation, right? Which is that you say, Sure, you can go to the simulated church in your computer because you're just a simulation in the first place. They probably wouldn't want to ban the person from participating because if they're making a mistake, 
and that's actually a real human being in there, then you're doing something really significant, which is cutting them off from the ability to connect to God. But once again, this starts getting into those really thorny metaphysical issues, which is that is this really a human being or not? And uh, if they are, then you want to give them all the things that they need in order to fulfill their religious obligations and desires. And if they're not, then even then, I'd be disposed towards still wanting to help them, even if they were a simulation, just in case, right? You want to be as secure as possible in wanting to facilitate people having what happened. Also, you never know if, if a large percentage of the world's population believes that they are real and then you're cutting them off, then you're also setting up something which is kind of a scandal, right? Which would be like you're kind of confusing people saying that these people are evil or they don't belong in church or something like that. In general, you want to be more accepting of more people and more inclusive rather than excluding people. But this is a constant struggle in religion that you see all the time. There are a lot of people who are like, who want to exclude people and others who want to be very inclusive. So it's, it's a constant thing that shows up in religion between the includers and the excluders. So I've read about you writing about the four myths you describe associated with religious people opposing life extension. And I feel like we have gone through a few of these as we've been discussing. Could you just briefly describe what those four myths were for the audience? Sure. So in that paper, basically the four myths are that the Catholic Church materially opposes life extension. The material opposition would be like, you're not allowed to extend life. And they say, oh, yeah, Christians just want people to die as soon as possible, because when they die, then they believe in God more and they'll you know, get to the afterlife as quickly as possible. I hope that we've talked about that enough so far to realize that that's a myth. The second one is that the Catholic Church would conceptually oppose life extension, which should be, you know, backing up a little bit, just talking conceptually speaking. And I think that the ministry of Jesus and various other things that we've talked about show that the church is conceptually in favor of life extension also, not just in a material sense, but also in a conceptual sense. So there's not this desire to die, which is that some transhumanists talk about deathists. You have these religious deathists, and then you'll have these cultural deathists, and they just think that death is good and that people should die. And the, the church is not deathist. What it will say is that at some point, life extension is probably not worth it anymore. And that's something that has to be very particular in the situation in order to determine. And that involves, you know, not just the social scarcity of goods, but also the individual in that particular case. So that's the first two, the material opposition and the conceptual opposition. Those are both myths. The third one is that the Catholic Church opposes genetic manipulation or other manipulations of the body for the sake of health. It turns out that the Catholic Church is not opposed to human genetic manipulation. It's actually in favor in terms of something that it calls therapeutic genetic manipulation or genetic surgery, they've even called it in some places, which is that this isn't a matter of, you know, just changing things randomly in a person. You're trying to help them. You're giving them a therapeutic cure or you're doing a sort of genetic surgery if that analogy helps, which is that you're being very precise about trying to help that person. That gets into the therapy versus enhancement distinction, which is a really sticky one to deal with. There's not a clear boundary. It depends a lot on what your definition is of healthcare and whether you think that healthcare is about restoring bodily function or avoiding death or maintaining health, or there are all these different ways of defining exactly what healthcare is. So it gets a little sticky there, but the kind of fundamental point is that the myth is not true. The Catholic Church actually is in favor of genetic manipulation of human beings if it is towards that therapeutic and beneficial end. And the fourth one is that the Catholic Church opposes letting people die. 
Now, the Catholic Church does have a lot of teachings about the seriousness of life and that you shouldn't have abortion, you shouldn't have euthanasia, you shouldn't have physician-assisted suicide. Those are all killing people who should be continuing on their natural trajectory of life. But the Catholic Church is actually all right with letting people die, because guess what? If the Catholic Church wasn't okay with letting people die, then you know all of history up until now has been a big mistake, right? Because people die. But there are all these medical criteria which say, look, if the treatment has become burdensome or if it has become uh, the form of treatment where the person is suffering or, or it's too much for them to bear or society can't afford it because of scarcity problems, then it's understandable that you have to stop treatment at some point. Yeah, I mean, this paper actually goes back to a conference that happened in San Francisco in, I think, 2014, where a speaker got up there and said, look, you're uploaded now and the Christians aren't going to let you die. They pass a law against it, right? And I thought to myself, oh, this is, this is a myth <laughs> right there, right? Is that you're already in this kind of extreme state for a human being. Are you even a human being anymore? Or are you just a simulation of a human being? And so I, I have a feeling that probably disconnecting or turning off the simulation is probably acceptable at that point. But this person and another person at the conference said exactly the opposite which is that they won't let you upload in the first place. Christians both won't let life extension happen, and they won't let you stop once it's happened. And I thought to myself, this is an interesting kind of conflict to explore. And so that's what I did in that paper. Wow. You've answered a lot of questions today, Brian, and I feel like there's just more that are coming out of my brain now. But I am also aware of the time because I think you've doubled probably our average interview length. Like, for sure, you shattered the longest one we've had so far. So I will attempt to wrap up now. And because we've talked about so much AI, ethics, space, religion, as we wrap up today, for our listeners, if there's one thing you really want them to take away from our conversation today, what would that be? So a couple of things. I'd say the first thing is that don't believe in the false dichotomy between science and technology and religion as though those are opposites from each other. They're always connected. And they're not just connected culturally or historically. They're always connected in the human person themselves, right? Which is that we're using technology right now. And even atheists, technologists still probably have some perspective on what is the purpose of human life, even if it's temporary, or they think they're nihilists or something like that. There's still something that makes them get up in the morning if it's even if it's just avoiding pain or avoiding suffering or think that something, maybe it's just hope, right? They hope that something good will happen in the future. Don't believe in that false dichotomy or false opposition, because actually religion and technology and science have been really, really tightly associated throughout history in just about every culture, but particularly in the West. And there's a really strong myth that's around that, that's been promulgated in the West as this antagonism between science and religion. It's really not there. It's so much more interesting than that in reality. The second thing I would say is that this is the thing I discovered from going to the Marshall Islands when I didn't know what I was doing which is that if you don't know what to do with yourself, and this is something I heard afterwards, you know, somebody said, oh, you didn't know what to do with yourself. You decided to help other people. And that's what the, what the lesson is. If you don't know what to do, help people. Because if you help people, you discover more about yourself, you discover more about society, you discover more about the world in which we live. And so, yeah, if you, if you don't know what to do, then help people. And it might be helping people through biomedical research. It might be helping people through social work or through academia, through teaching people or teaching grade school or writing papers or doing public policy. There are so many different ways to help people. Just find out what those ways are. And uh, once you figure out what is the right connection for you, then and go do it. So Brian, since we're wrapping up, I have to ask, 
where can people go to a website or wherever maybe to learn more about your work, you supporting it, or even get involved with the things you do? So I'm on Google Scholar. I think that would be the first thing, which is go into Google Scholar, type in my name. It should come up if you add ethics to it, then it's even more likely to come up. I have a page there that has all my publications on it. I also have an academia.edu page, which is not quite up to date because I keep forgetting about it, but it has a lot of my stuff posted there and is, is available. Various uh, papers of mine, a lot of them are available online with the full text. You can go to the Markle Center website, which has you know a bio about me. It has some other things that I've written. Yeah, I mean, you can just Google me. These things will come up. I have to say at this point, I have a space ethics book coming out. So I just finished a book on space ethics. It's being published by Roman and Littlefield. I'm reviewing the proofs right now. So it should be coming out in the next few months. And uh, I'm very excited about it. It takes a lot of these ideas that we talked about and it gives them a, a much more detailed investigation. And hopefully it's fun also, right? It's taking ethics and it's applying it to a fun subject. And it gives you a whole bunch of things to think about. So if you felt like your mind has been stretched, this book will be a good opportunity for that to continue having your mind stretched even more. And then also there's a, an edited volume that should be coming out in the next few months that I wrote with Arvind Goh and Ted Peters. It's called Religious Transhumanism and Its Critics. It's similar to the uh, Religion and Transhumanism book by Mercer and Trothan. Once again, it has a whole bunch of different voices in it that are kind of arguing and asking the question, should transhumanism or does transhumanism have a religious element to it? And if so, should it or should it not? Or should religion stay away from transhumanism? What's the proper relationship between these kind of different ideologies? Should they overlap? Should they stay apart from each other? Should religion try to beat down on transhumanism or transhumanism try to beat down on religion? So yeah, that's, that's really, uh, that book is a fun exploration of that subject and, and just uh, gets, gets more deeply into it. Okay, so for everyone listening, those links that Brian just discussed and potentially his book on space ethics as well as his other book will be in the description below. Once again, thank you so much for coming on to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. Brian, we really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with us for about two hours today. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. You know, keep up the good work is what I would say. And thank you so much for letting me be on the podcast.